The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. Thanks, guys. You can have a seat. Let's pray. Father, what a glorious morning we have that we can stop and celebrate the finished work of Christ on the cross. We can do that knowing we can stop and celebrate that every morning. That the reality that we, that's forced upon us, that he is risen, is a reality that we can proclaim to ourselves every morning that, that we rise. And Lord, we understand that if he did not rise from the grave, if Christ was still in the grave, we would have no hope. But because he is alive, he is our mediator, we as believers can live and act and, 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 and rest in a different manner than those around us. Father, I thank you that we can, this morning, just center our hearts and minds on the finished work of Christ and that we can celebrate the fact that we have hope. Just be with us now as we look at your word and in your name, amen. Well, I would encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 28. Um, this week, as we've been going through the Holy Week, we've been centered, we've, we've stopped each day and just considered the events of the Holy Week, and we've been using Matthew as our guide. And this morning, we get to um, celebrate the end of it all. But I want to pick up, before we get there, with where we left off on Friday night. If you were able to join us on Friday at our Good Friday service, you know that that was a, a, a somber time. That was a difficult time. We tried to place ourselves in the mindset, have the emotions of Jesus. Jesus' disciples, because Friday on Good Friday, while it was Good Friday because it is finished and Christ went to the cross, it was a difficult day because his disciples thought, what's going on? And then if you again followed along in the Holy Week, we then woke up yesterday in a deep despair. I don't know if you've ever had the worst day of your life and then woke up again and there was, and you realize that wasn't a dream, but that was Saturday for these disciples. It was a very long day for them. I'm sure they wanted to go to the grave. They wanted to be by, by their Savior. They wanted to be by Christ, but the Sabbath, because it was Saturday, the Sabbath um, restricted them to go. But what we see is that the first thing that the disciples do On the next morning after Sabbath is they rise and they quickly run to their Savior's tomb and what they find completely blew them away. So if you will, read with me Matthew 28, 1 through 10. It says this, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, what that means is they had a restless night. They were trying to get there as soon as they could. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. I wonder why they went to see the tomb. Like, they placed Jesus in the tomb. Did they think that something was going to happen? I I don't know, but clearly something had happened because behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothing white as snow, and for the fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek, Jesus, you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. 
Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he had risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. You can almost pause now as you read this, because I think Mary went and looked into the tomb and said, yeah, you're right, Jesus isn't in there. And we can pick back up and said, well, see, I told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up to him and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee that they will see me. He is risen is the chief phrase that marks us as Christians. No other religion, no other so-called God can say that. When the angel said, behold, he's not here, he is risen, that is what marks us as believers. Just for a moment, I want you to reconsider again the emotions of the disciple that his disciples had as they watched their Savior die on Friday. Again, that's what we focused in on on Good Friday. We, we uh, understood just the depression, the darkness, the distress that was there. But today, on Easter morning, I again want to consider the emotions when they heard that Jesus had risen from the grave. You know, it should not go unnoticed that the very first command that was given to Mary and Mary was that you should go and tell people about this. The very first command was, you should go and make a really big deal about this. Our Savior is no longer in the grave. You know, I'm sure one of the questions that Jesus' disciples had been asking on Saturday was this. What now? They had spent the last three and a half years following Jesus. They had wrapped their life up with him. They had forsaken everything else. They had pursued Jesus at all costs. And then all of a sudden, Jesus is gone. And they're stepping back saying, did I just make a mistake by following after him? They're sitting there in their despair saying, how do we go back from this? How am I going to go back to my town and to my job and to my family and to my friends and explain to them what's happening? What am I supposed to do? They felt lost. All of a sudden, Mary Magdalene and Mary get to run back to his disciples and say in utter amazement, all is not lost. He is risen. We have a job again. We have a pursuit again. We didn't pursue him and look like fools now. He he broke out of the grave. He is alive. You know, this is utter amazement because their Savior, whom they saw hung on a tree, stabbed through his side. They then took him down and placed him in this tomb. They then get to run back to the very people that witnessed all of that to say, guess what? He's alive. This scene, this text, this story is pregnant with meaning as I just considered this morning, which angle to take, what to speak about. You know, we, we could talk about the angel's declaration. That would be a fun deep dive into that. We could discuss how the first chosen messengers of our risen Lord were women. That could be a fun one. We could dig down into the reports of the guards when they told, when they talked about the incident. We could unpack how those who have a relationship with Jesus need not fear, but everyone else around, they should fear. But I'm going to save all those conversations and themes for another year. We could celebrate Easter every single year so we can dig into those at a different time. I want to focus on a little different question this morning. 
One that I'm sure the disciples were asking themselves and maybe they even asked Jesus. It's a very simple question. Why death? Jesus comes back from the grave. They see him. They they are interacting with him. They're having a conversation with him. And I wonder if they step back and go, Jesus, why did you die? Why did you choose this route? Why did you choose the cross? Why death? There's not a single soul on earth that knew that he would rise from the grave three days after his death. I mean, yes, he foretold about it. And hindsight being 2020, we can see how it's not completely surprising. But at the moment of Good Friday, no one was stepping back saying, this is a good thing. I'm really glad this is happening. We need this. No, this is the only hope. No, they went into Good Friday. They went into Saturday saying all is lost. So when they step back and go, why did you choose that way to usher in salvation? But this question is asking an even deeper question. This question of why death is a question that's directed towards God. And the question is this. God, why did you choose the death of your son to be the solution to our problem? We all know that we have a problem. We all know that we live with a problem. Even if you don't use the theological language, even if you don't acknowledge God, even if you don't acknowledge sin, we all know that there's a problem. Because sin, we feel the effects of it constantly. In all of us, all humanity is trying to find our own solution for it. So regardless if we acknowledge God or even use the language of sin, the whole world understands that things are not how they ought to be. We grumble and complain because there's wars, because there's disease, because there's cancer, because there's stubbed toes, because there's famine, because there's brokenness, because there's sin. It's the universal plight of man is suffering and pain and loss and disappointment, rejection and sorrow. And the way that we speak about all those things, how we wrap all of that theological language up and all of that, and and we acknowledge all of that is through the language of sin. God, why did you choose the death of your son to solve the problem of sin? This death was so shocking because none of us would choose the death of our son to deal with the problem of sin. None of us. If I asked you right now that you got to be the author of the Bible, you got to figure out the solution to all of this, none of us would choose the death of our son, would choose the death of a loved one. I think how we, not I think, How we go about solving problems is very different than how God went about solving this particular problem. I want to talk about that for a a moment. I'll tell you where I get this information from in case you want to go actually read the book or read up on it. I I was reading an article this week by uh, Robert Robert Chapin. It's from a book, Kingdom, Grace, and Judgment. And he's talking about power. It's interesting how God uses his power to solve the problem of sin. You know how we use power? We use power, as Chapman says, we use direct, straight-line, intervening power. Now, I know this is a new description for you, so allow me to describe it and identify some things here. Direct, straight-line, intervening power is this. We apply physical power. We, sorry, we apply the application of physical power to solve a problem. Here's some examples. If you are hungry, you 
use direct straight line intervening power to raise or dominate the fork to raise it to your mouth to feed yourself. Or if we look at trying to conquer a nation, we apply our military might straight, a a direct straight line intervening power of military might to conquer that nation. Allow me just to quote Chapman in case I'm rather confusing here. Direct straight line intervening power does, of course, have many uses. With it, you can lift the spaghetti from the plate to your mouth. You can wipe the sauce off your slacks, carry them to the dry cleaners, perhaps even make enough money to ransom them back. Indeed, straight line power, which is the use, use the force you need to get the result you want, is responsible for almost everything that happens in the world. And the beauty of it is it works. From the removing of dust with a cloth to the removing of your enemy with a 45, it achieves its ends in sensible, effective, easily understood ways. The way that we apply power is when we have to find a solution for something, our answer is more power. When we're trying to um, understand how to uh, get over something, it's simply we just need a bigger bomb. You know, for us, it's if you have the one bomb, if you have the atomic bomb, well, hey, we're just going to make the hydrogen bomb. We only know how to apply more power to a situation in order to overwhelm it. Let's speak about this in religious terms. You might be going around, you're way off. How did the Pharisees handle the power of the law? You know, all those Ten Commandments? They knew, I, I can't keep those. How did, they, how did they overcome that power? By adding more power to it, by adding all of these other laws around it. This is why Jesus comes and on the Sermon on the Mount and goes, you've got to be kidding me. You're trying to handle, you're trying to, Uh, get over the law with more laws. They just thought if we add more laws to it, that'll handle it. Imagine if God decided to use this type of power on us. Imagine if he thought, okay, the way to handle the problem of sin is to overwhelm the sinner. He would have no problem doing that. He would have absolutely no problem overwhelming us with his glory. We would hold no threat or challenge to him. He could have at the moment of the first sin with Adam snapped his fingers and the problem would have immediately, effectively, and completely been gone. He could have just said, well, I made you, I can destroy you, you're done. We couldn't stand against that. But that's not what God decided to do. He didn't decide to use this direct straight line intervening power that we're all so familiar with, that we, honestly, if we created the story, that's how we would go about solving this problem. No, God decided to use a different type of power, a power that if I can add another description, what Luther called left-handed power. Allow me to quote from Chapman again. Unlike the power of the right hand, which interestingly enough is governed by the logical plausibility-loving left hemisphere of the brain, left-handed power is is guided by a more intuitive, open, imaginative right side of the brain. Left-handed power, in other words, is precisely paradoxical power. Power that looks for all the world like weakness. Intervention that seems indistinguishable from non-intervention. More than that, it is guaranteed to stop no determined evildoer whatsoever. Left-handed power? Well, left-handed power does not look like strength. It looks like weakness. Left-handed power does not look like wisdom. It looks like foolishness. 
Left-handed power does not look sensible. It looks crazy. In short, it doesn't look like power at all. God's power shocked the disciples. They didn't see it coming. That's why on Saturday, in their despair, they're going, what, he died? That's not the answer. They were thinking like Peter was thinking. You know, when Peter, when Jesus rebuked Peter, why did Jesus rebuke Peter, call him Satan? Because Jesus starts talking about the cross and death and weakness, and Peter wants to pull him aside and goes, no, 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 that's not how this works. You're going to take the throne. You're going to apply uh, this straight, direct line power. You're not going to use this weakness thing. God, what are you doing? It shocked the disciples, but it really shouldn't have shocked the disciples. Because God has always been using this type of power. You know, in our stories, it's the knight in shining armor that gets the glory. In God's story, the strong, outspoken celebrity king named Saul is rejected by the young shepherd boy to take the throne. In our stories, when we want shock and awe, we reach for the largest of bombs. In God's story, he has his people looking like wandering fools, idiots, for days as they overwhelm the walls of Jericho by walking. In our stories, we celebrate the overwhelming force of mighty armies. In God's stories, he tells Gideon to send away the many so that you can trust in the few. In our stories, we leave out the unsightly people and events to protect our image. In God's story, he highlights the faith of all those who come to him, even if that faith is from a harlot named Rahab. In our stories, we protect the family name. In God's story, he lets in outsiders like Ruth. In our stories, we secure our bets. In God's story, he guarantees extraordinary promises to, of future generations to barren women. I think you get the, the uh, picture here, right? God's always been using the weakness of the world. He's always been using this power that doesn't look like power. He's always been using this left-handed power. But why? Why does God go about solving the problem of sin by using this left-handed power? Well, that gets back to our original question of why death? Why did you have to die? Here's the answer. God works in such a way to prove to us that nothing is going to come along more powerful to cancel the work that he has done. You know, our power, this direct straight line intervening power, you could also call that right-handed power, there's always a bigger bomb, is there not? Give it time. Something bigger, something better is going to come along that will nullify the first one. This left-handed power, there's no way to overcome it. Christ's death purchased for us the most precious gift of all, which is salvation. And God's solution for fallen humanity was not to overwhelm us with destruction, but to overwhelm us with his love. Yes, there is destruction and anger and, and wrath. I mean, they're still present. But instead of having us bear that weight, he sent his son Jesus to bear that weight. But the gospel story is one of love, not because there's no judgment. You see, in God's way of dealing with it, it doesn't mean that judgment is canceled out. It doesn't mean that he turns a blind eye to those things. It's a story of love because that judgment was given to and satisfied by another. The reason that Jesus had to die was because 
God had to judge our sin. God's wrath had to be satisfied. Somebody had to die. The reason that Jesus had to come was because God had to deal justly with the, with the problem, which is sin. But he chose to deal justly, not with us, but with his son. Right-handed, this direct, straight-line, intervening power was applied. It just wasn't applied to us. It was applied to Christ. Anything else would have left room for someone to come and to nullify what had been done. Any other solution, there would be no assurance. But salvation through the death of Christ is a sure thing. Allow me to quote once more from Chapin. He finishes by saying, God in Christ died forgiving. And with the dead body of Jesus, he wedged open the door between himself and the world and said, there, just try to get me to take that back. When Jesus rises from the grave, the declaration that he had on the cross is stamped a sure thing. It is finished. And he is risen. We gather this morning not to celebrate a Savior who died but is in the grave still, but to celebrate a Savior who did everything for us that we ever needed and, and satisfied all of the wrath that we had and then rose from the grave and said, now I'm going to be your continual mediator. Now, you might be thinking, going, Ryan, this is a little off base. What in the world are you talking about? I've never heard this type of explanation. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And if I did an adequate job of describing these two types of power, hopefully it's a little clearer than mud, listen to Paul's words. 1 Corinthians 1.18. For by the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of him, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord.
so easy in our Christian lives to get caught up in this idea that we at some point have to start boasting, trusting, looking at what we do. We have to start applying this right-handed power to our spiritual life. We have to start living in a way that is, frankly, opposed to the gospel. But what Paul declares in 1 Corinthians and all over the place and what the gospel declares is, listen, our gospel is very simple. We offer nothing. Christ offers everything. And we trust in something that to the world's eyes is going to look foolish. But to God's eyes is the only perfect, acceptable, satisfactory sacrifice. When we gather this morning on Easter morning and we celebrate our risen Savior, we celebrate the life, death, burial, and resurrection and the redemption that is complete. That's what you need to hear this morning if you get nothing else out of this service. Redemption is complete. You can't add to the completeness. There's no 101%. It is 100% complete. You can't add to that. You can't take away from that. That can't be um, diminished in any capacity. It is complete. We can sit here today, be here, here, here today, and celebrate the finished work of Christ. Dear saints, in a world that loves to boast of glory, to boast in glory and its power and its wisdom and its skill and its craft and its beauty and its might, we get to proclaim an even greater power, Christ and him crucified. The last thing that we get to do this morning is take communion together. We, we do this every week here at Community Bible Church and every week it is a special thing because the world tells you that you will be judged based upon the works of your own hands. It tells you that in so many ways throughout the week. The gospel declares to you that no, you won't. What you will be judged by is Christ's body, Christ's life, Christ's sacrifice, and Christ's risen life. If you are joining us for the first time this morning, welcome. If you are still unsure about this gospel thing, haven't heard of Christ, maybe somebody brought you here today and um, you haven't placed your faith in Christ, what I would ask is that you let these elements pass you by. We don't want to confuse you with them. We don't take these elements to save us because as I said, we're complete in Christ. We take them to celebrate what has been done. And if you are here and you are going to have these elements pass you by, come find me after the service. I would love to speak to you more about the finished work of Christ and to let you know how you can place your faith in him as well. Let's pray, and we can take this together. Lord, thank you for the cross. As difficult as it was for the disciples, as, as earth-shattering, mind-blowing, uh, tailspin that they were in Friday and Saturday, and then even Sunday, thank you. Because it's clear, the only, have we, the only hope we have in life and death is through our risen Savior. I thank you that we can gather this morning like we can gather every morning and every Sunday and celebrate the fact that our hope is found in you and you alone. In your Son's name, amen.
Thank you for listening to this audio presentation from Community Bible Church. For more information, please visit us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee, or online at cbcnashville.org.